to see you all here this morning on this day where we will talk about evil empires. Now, I'm of an age where to say the words evil empire conjures up images of Darth Vader, George Steinbrenner. Many of you are too young maybe to get that. But then one that we can all agree personifies evil, Bill Belichick. All right? So... I, I'm of that age, and, and I can think of those, those personalities, those characters, when I think of the word evil empire, but those characters, those personalities don't instill fear, really. They're really more just for entertainment value. We, we think of them as foils for the plot of movies that we are enjoying or as foils in our various rooting interests in sports. It's all in good fun. But there is, in fact, a real evil empire that has been at work in our world from the very beginning that is at work currently and whose work will reach its zenith at the time of Christ's return. And yet, at this moment of preeminent power, it will be dealt with in judgment, swiftly, decisively, and eternally. Now, a quick review of things before we dive into what we are doing today. Revelation 14 through 16, at which we looked last week, give us, who are reading it, kind of a 30,000-foot overview of the event of Christ's return. Now, the pattern that we have been given uh, by way of vision in John's revelation have been in packages of seven. So, it really goes back to the seven churches and then you have seven seals, you have seven trumpets, and then you have the seven bowls, which represent the return of Christ. We looked at that again last week. But with the previous sevens, there's an interlude. There's a break that takes place. Now, the break between uh, the, the seven churches is a description of the heavenly glory, God on his throne, the Lamb uh, who is worthy, standing as yet slain. And then you have the seven seals. And the interlude for the seven seals takes place between verse or the breaking of the sixth seal and the breaking of the seventh seal. We're given more detail about what the seals represent, the period of time that the seals represent. And then you have a break between the blowing of the sixth trumpet and the seventh trumpet, which give us detail as to what that time period represents. But when you get to the seven bowls, it all occurs in one chapter. There is no break, and the interlude comes after the pouring of the last bowl, which communicates to us that the events of the seven bowls are different. They are not meant to be viewed as an extended period of time, but really a compressed period of time dealing again with the event of Christ's return. And when we get to the interlude accompanying that seven, chapter 17 through chapter 19, verse 5, we are given the detail of that which the seven bowls describe. The seven bowls describe the return of King Jesus to uh, undo, to take down the evil empire. Uh, and the evil empire's actual destruction is talked about in our passage today. So I hope you found Revelation 17. I'm going to read all of Revelation 17. And so because it's lengthy, I'm not going to ask you to stand. But you may be asking, you know, I've noticed here that you're reading a lot of really large chunks of Scripture. Why are you doing that? 
Well, the book opens with a pronouncement of blessing on the people in the church who read this aloud. Now, I'm not using it as a lucky rabbit's foot, you know, hoping that, you know, my team wins or anything because I read this aloud. It's just a means by which we are able to be obedient to the words of Revelation. It is a blessing to the church to read it aloud. So I've been reading as much of it aloud as we can. But let's dive in now in Revelation 17, verse 1. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns." The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I marveled greatly. But the angel said to me, why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with seven heads and ten horns that carries her. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains. On which the woman is seated. There are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is, the other has not yet come, and when he does, he must remain only a little while. As for the beast that was and is not, it is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven and it goes to its destruction. And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. These are of one mind, and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. They will make war on the lamb, and the lamb will conquer them, for he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those with him are called and chosen and faithful. And the angel said to me, the waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. And the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. Okay, everybody got it? Good? All right? I mean, it makes perfect sense to everybody. No explanation needed. I mean, pretty self-evident. Not at all. Not at all. Now, I will say this. It's important to understand it's not wrong to go into the weeds with the details of the book of Revelation. That's part of Bible study. But we're not doing that on Sunday mornings because we think it's important for us to see all of it, to see the point that is being made, to see the broader landscape of things in the book of Revelation. And in doing so, hopefully help us see the main point that is being made to John. 
John is being shown the ultimate object of the wrath of God at the return of Christ. A world order under whose sway a rebellion has been carried out against God. The nature of this rebellion has been spiritual. It has stolen the heart of people away from the one true God. So this rebellion against God entrenched in the world order has primarily been spiritual in nature, stealing people's hearts from God to itself. Now, how do we know this? We know this because the image of prostitution and sexual immorality in our Old Testament-framed minds should call our attention to the language of the prophets. When the prophets were condemning Israel for their failure to stay faithful to God by worshiping idols, they used the language of sexual immorality. Israel, in kind of a covenant married relationship with God, had been unfaithful. Also, when you see the image of a prostitute used in the book of Proverbs, it is stealing away a husband's heart from the covenant relationship that he is to have with his wife. So this prostitute that is being pictured here has drawn away all of society from faithfulness to God. That's why this rebellion is primarily spiritual. And it's created a world order that has accepted her idolatrous ways. Now she's used a specific kind of bait. We're going to spend a lot of time on that in a little bit. But right now I want us to see how the the vision of chapter 17 progresses. John is then shown, after this initial image, the same thing from a different perspective. He's shown a finely arrayed woman setting atop a beast, and that demonstrates the spiritual realities behind this prostitute's seduction. The prostitute is a proxy in the world for the beast, the Antichrist. She is the manifestation in our world of his power. She is the earthly manifestation of the evil empire that is arrayed against God. And one of the things that the vision of chapter 17 makes abundantly clear is that she has always been here. She's always been here. That comes out in the name Babylon. It is meant to be understood on many levels. That's the reason the word mystery is attached to the name. Babylon was the ancient and idolatry, idolatrous city of Babylon that attacked God's people in the Old Testament. It was in John's time the idolatrous city of Rome which oppressed God's people. And yet part of the mystery of Babylon and the spirit of Babylon is that it has never reached its full potential. That day is coming. And it is that coming day where the full power and might of Babylon will come to pass that causes John to marvel. When he sees Something as powerful as Rome only being a shadow of the manifestation of opposition to God that is to come, he can't help but think, good heavens, what? That's unbelievable. And he's told not to because of something we're going to see in just a little bit. But in the verses that follow, John has shown that the woman and the beast have appeared throughout history to oppress God's people. That's where the language comes in about it was and is not anymore, but will one day be. Those, that kind of language points to the fact that it has continued to exist. And it was also present in John's time. 
as seen in the image of the seven heads representing seven mountains. We know from uh, our civics class, history class, social studies class, I hope, that Rome sat on seven hills. And so he's being told here that Babylon in his time has manifested itself as Rome. But there will come a final manifestation. That's the reason that you hear this language, not yet. A final manifestation at the end of time will come that will draw, listen to this, all the kings of the world to it. And this is where it's important to make a point as to Satan's overall strategy. John is being told that there will come a king and kingdom that will draw to itself people from every tribe, from every tongue, and from every nation. The vision that kicked off this part of the book of Revelation was an ascription of honor and glory to the Lamb who has created for himself a people from every tribe, from every tongue, and from every nation. This then has been the plan of Satan throughout the ages, to get the world to accept a cheap substitute of the real thing. And there will come a time when it succeeds in a way unlike it ever has before. I want you to think about the spiritual rebellion that exists in the world in which we live today and then project out how that could be worse. There will come a time, unlike any that has ever been before, with this drawing to uh, itself a rebellion that uh, will shock the mind, cause us to marvel. So then we need to ask the question, how could so many be drawn so far away? The answer to that, the bait that is used, is found in Revelation 18. We're not going to read all of it because of the first four verses will do, providing a summary. Look at verse 1 of Revelation 18. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory. And he called out with a mighty voice, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all the nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. In the span of those four verses, we see two themes emerge, which are reiterated over and over again throughout the rest of Revelation 18, that identify to us the two components of the bait that this prostitute who will draw all the world away from God to itself in a unified way will use. Here's what the prostitute of Babylon symbolically what that final world manifestation of rebellion against God will use to draw people away. Political power and wealth. The promise of wealth. The promise of political power. The promise of wealth. The political power is seen in the image of all the nations of the earth drinking from the wine of her sexual immorality. Again, that is not to be understood in the physical sense, but to be understood in a broad Old Testament spiritual sense, equating a worship of a false god with unfaithfulness to God. Political power 
is a seductive thing. You can convince yourself that the most virtuous thing you need to do is keep it, and you will seek it regardless of the cost. Years ago, I was asked to go with a group of faith leaders and business people from Kansas to lobby for um, a particular issue with our four representatives and our two senators in Washington. I won't tell you what the issue was because it would likely, because of the world in which we live, trigger half of you one way and trigger half of you the next and either say, how dare you or good on you and you'll miss what I'm saying. So we're not going to miss not going to mention the issue, but I just got the opportunity to go. And uh, I was really hopeful that we were onto something. The thing that we were supporting had bipartisan support. Um, there seemed to be some energy in the world for it at that period of time. And so I was hopeful until I'd been there about five minutes. And then I figured out, well, this is not going to work. And there's one particular conversation that really stands out in my mind as to why it wouldn't work but also illustrates perfectly the seduction of power. We met with one representative who said, you know what, I like this plan. In committee, I supported this plan. Um, I could win on the general election on this plan, but I can't win the primary on this plan. And what this person was saying to us was maintaining their position of power was more important than what was right. Now, they had convinced themselves, I can do so much better for so many other things by just looking the other way here. But you get the seduction. It can be very, very easy to think, you know what? I need the power and do what is objectifiably the wrong thing. The first enticement is political power. The second enticement of Babylon is wealth. Now, I would like to encourage you uh, to read the rest of chapter 18 on your own when you get home this afternoon, and I want you to look at how much the promise of wealth plays a part in the world's allegiance, but I want you to right now look at the screen. We have a chart here, and I'm going to overly simplify the chart for you. All of the little circles represent groupings of similar wealth. Obviously, the lower you are back towards the left corner, the less you have. The further that you go up to the right, the more you have. Groupings, the circles are groupings of people with similar wealth. The line that is drawn up the middle is the perception of your wealth as related to others. All right, so here's what this, again, oversimplifying it, what this is saying. It's saying the general trend of humanity is to perceive people who have the same amount as you as actually having more than you do. And that is true even with the uber wealthy. Even the uber wealthy believe other people who, unbeknownst to them, have the exact same category of wealth that they have actually have way more than I do. And so you see how subtly you can be seduced by the promise of more, more wealth. Our belief that we never have enough makes it very difficult to resist the whisper that something or someone else can give me more. This is how Babylon has seduced throughout history 
And this is what Babylon will offer the world in history's final chapter in a way that seems impossible for us to imagine right now. I don't know if you've noticed. Maybe you haven't. Maybe it's just me. Have you noted our world divided a little? Have you noted that? I mean, think of all of the divisions that exist in our nation and in our church and on our streets and in our families. Think of all of that and understand that there will come a time where the common bait of power and wealth will be able to unite jihadist and pacifist, communist and capitalist, Democrat and Republicans. Is there any way to anticipate what that might possibly look like, this, this ability to, to cut through a divide and unite on the promise of power and wealth. Absolutely. And if you'll permit me to exercise my spiritual gift of making people of all stripes wildly uncomfortable, I will give you some examples. It will look like the QAnon cult and Christian nationalism that blends the promise of political power with Christian imagery. It will look like the secularism that promises the state will rescue you if only you acknowledge its omnipotence. It will look like white supremacy on the right that promises a power monopoly. It will look like critical race theory on the left that promises a power revolution. It will look like evangelical churches whose message can't be distinguished from the Republican Party and mainline liberal churches whose message can't be distinguished from the Democratic Party. Do you see what I mean? Every one of those groups are seduced by the promise of power or maintaining power or wealth. And to get a grasp again of how successful this will be in the end, all of those groups I've just mentioned who have mutually exclusive agendas will be brought together. Such will be the seduction to come. Babylon exists in our world. It whispers to us everywhere we go. And it will only grow stronger as we approach the end. So... Let me bring this to a close by giving three bits of instruction that I think we can draw from what we have read together. First, it's important in the world in which we live now. I'm not talking about the why off, you know, far off future. But in the world in which we live now, it is important to identify Babylon's dominion, its rule. Where does it rule? Simple, it's everywhere. It rules everywhere. In fact, I want us to go and see how that rule is portrayed in case we missed it back in the first three verses of Revelation 17. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated, underline that, we'll come back to it, on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting, underline that, on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads. I want you to think about movies of royalty that you've seen. I mean, many of you probably have been sucked into the crown on Netflix. 
The queen never stands for anybody, right? As a demonstration of her power, when she's in the throne room, she remains seated and everybody comes and bows to her. That seatedness that you see of the prostitute here and the kings of the earth and the world coming, standing, are a demonstration that these kings are giving their power credit where credit's due. It comes from you. They are paying homage, and the dominion of this rule is the entire world. That becomes very clear in verse 15 of Revelation 17. The waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. What we are being seen or shown here is that the dominion of Babylon is universal. It literally is everywhere you go. You cannot walk out your door and not be confronted with it. You cannot turn on your radio or your television or whatever media device you have and not be confronted with it. You cannot have a private conversation with your wife about bug spray in your home without it showing up in the feed of Instagram with all kinds of bugs bug spray uh, advertisements. It shows up everywhere. It literally is everywhere, promising subtly, sometimes overtly, power and wealth. Our world is the dominion right now of Babylon. So where's our real hope? We can say it's Jesus all we want, But when our days are filled with political concerns and relentless acquisition and pursuing prestige, then everything about our lives tells the world that a real hope isn't in Jesus, it's in Babylon. Recognize its dominion, folks. It's everywhere. Next, having recognized that dominion, that it's everywhere, flee Babylon's seduction. Flee Babylon's seduction. Suggestion, seduction. The, the vision that references uh, our need right now to be aware of all of this in the here and now comes to us in verse 4 of Revelation chapter 18. The angel cries out with a voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. What's that voice saying? That voice is saying that you live in a world that is controlled by Babylon. She will constantly try to seduce you, run from it as fast as you can. These uh, chapters in Revelation are showing us that if you refuse to listen to Babylon's whisper, if you refuse to be identified with this empire arrayed against God, it will cost you something. It may cost you your livelihood. It may cost you your very life, but you must recognize the cheap substitute that cries out to us that says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you power or give you wealth. You you have to learn as God's people to hear it, to hear it and recognize it for the cheap substitute that it is. And if you do that, you can weather whatever pain it might cause you to hold your ground if you do this last thing. Anticipate Babylon's fall. Let me read to you the beginning of lots and lots and lots of good news that close out the book of Revelation. Verse 1 of chapter 19. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah, salvation and glory! And power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. 
For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders, remember, these represent the church, and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne saying, Amen and Hallelujah. At the second coming of Christ, Babylon, the evil empire that has shadowed humanity since the garden will metastasize glory globally at the end, will be finally, fully, swiftly, soundly defeated by the return of the king. Twice, twice in Revelation chapter 18, we are told that this defeat at the hands of Christ, of this thing which was so massive and amazing that John was tempted to marvel, will happen in a day because of the strength and glory and majesty of the true king, Jesus. And when we focus on that outcome, That is where and when we find real hope in an increasingly darkening world. It's easy to not know what to do, isn't it? I mean, we live in a world where we want to be responsible citizens and we want to reflect our convictions in our citizenship. We live in a world where we want to provide well for our family. There's nothing wrong with that. In fact, the qualification for me doing my job is, is providing well spiritually and in all other ways for my family. But it's a knife's edge that we walk. And on either side, we hear a voice whispering to us, you need more power than what you have in Jesus. You need this political victory. Or you need more than what you have financially. You need this shortcut to acquire wealth. It's a knife's edge for obedience. And it's hard to know what to do. What do I do? What do I do to resist this pervasive voice? The thing that I have dwelled on in this past tumultuous year has been the words of Paul in Colossians chapter 3. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above not on things on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ your God. And when Christ your life appears, then you will appear with him in glory. So what does that do for me? It calls me to not pay attention to all that tempts me here. In fact, the rest of Colossians 3 goes just that way. It calls me not to pay attention to all that tempts me here and to keep my mind fixed on Jesus, to root my identity in Jesus, to not care if I'm powerless and to not care if I'm penniless if it means forsaking Jesus. And to look for the day when he appears understanding that his appearance 
is evidence of the victory that is already mine because I am hidden with Christ in God. Good news from here on out. If we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.